Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Damian Garde, recording from STAT's New York City Bureau. I'm Adam Feuerstein, coming to you from STAT's headquarters in Boston. And I'm Rebecca Robbins, recording from STAT's San Francisco Outpost. It is Thursday, February 14th, and here's what's on the docket this week. Gilead scientists reported disappointing results from the first late-stage clinical trial for a drug meant to treat the fatty liver disease known as NASH. Our STAT colleague, Matt Herper, joins us to break down the implications for the NASH field. Johnson & Johnson convinced a group of FDA advisors that it deserves to win approval for a novel depression treatment related to the anesthetic known as ketamine. Our STAT colleague, Megan Thielking, joins us to explain what the drug's approval could mean for an industry based on giving off-label infusions of the drug to patients in need. How much gold standard evidence is out there to support the idea of using artificial intelligence in medicine? Not much, according to one researcher who sifted through the scientific literature. Dr. Eric Topol, a cardiologist and geneticist at the Scripps Research Institute in San Diego, joins us to talk about what he found when doing so. And last but not least, we'll bring you another lightning round. That'll mean quick takes on a development in the CRISPR patent drama, 2019's crop of biotech IPOs, and the latest term of art to enter the biotech lexicon. But first, a word from our sponsor. This episode of The Read Out Loud is brought to you by Two Scientists Walk Into a Bar, a Genentech science podcast, where listeners can take a deep dive into the hottest science trends, like the human microbiome, what it is and how it works. Visit gene.com forward slash podcast. That's G-E-N-E dot com forward slash podcast. And subscribe to Two Scientists Walk Into a Bar to learn more. spent a lot of time on this podcast talking about a liver disease called NASH, and that's for two reasons. One, it's incredibly prevalent. And two, there are no drugs approved to treat it, which is why the pharmaceutical industry is spending loads of money trying to develop some. But doing so, it turns out, is hard. Earlier this week, the first late-stage clinical trial of a NASH drug delivered some disappointing results. Adam and our stat colleague, Matt Herper, have been doing a bunch of reporting on the subject. So we're going to put them on the hot seat to talk about this trial and its implications for the NASH field. Matt, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. So first of all, Adam, what happened in this trial that we're talking about? Yeah, Damien, so this is a clinical trial was conducted by the biotech company Gilead Sciences. It enrolled nearly 900 patients with compensated cirrhosis. That's an advanced form of NASH that placed them at higher risk for liver-related death. But after 48 weeks, Gilead's drug proved incapable of reducing liver scarring any more than a placebo pill. So Matt, what does this mean for all the other companies trying to treat NASH? Well, obviously, this is bad for Gilead. It's also always a setback for the whole field when you haven't had a success and a drug fails. So this reshuffles the roster of biotech and pharma companies that are trying to develop effective medicines to treat NASH, which really isn't the most well-defined condition. Well, yeah, that kind of brings up my next question. Adam, can we step back for a moment and explain what NASH is? Yeah, so you know, NASH is a shorthand moniker for non-alcoholic steatohepatitis. And this is an increasingly prevalent disease in which fat builds up in the liver over years, even decades. And that leads to a dangerous tissue scarring process called fibrosis that can cause organ failure. And NASH is a surprisingly prevalent disease, right, Matt? Yes, it is. It's a slow-moving disease, but it could affect anywhere from 15 to 30 million Americans. Um, And the causes of NASH are the same as a lot of the lifestyle diseases that pharma's target over the years. Poor diet, lack of exercise, obesity, diabetes... 
and these things are all on the rise. Doctors think it could become a leading driver of liver transplants by the end of the decade. And so that prevalence creates a pretty strong and, and very obvious incentive for drug companies to develop a therapy. Adam, how many NASH drugs are in the pipeline right now? Yeah, you know, NASH is viewed as kind of a multi-billion dollar commercial opportunity for pharma and biotech companies. So at this point right now, there are about 37 experimental drugs targeting NASH in the mid or late stage clinical trial process. That data point is according to Biomed Tracker, a life sciences R&D research firm. You know, and all those clinical trials are advancing to the point where we're starting to get some definitive answers. You know, 2019 is being called the year of NASH because several drug makers are expecting readout from pivotal clinical trials in the coming months. And if those clinical trials are successful, the next step would be submitting the drugs to the FDA for review and possible marketing approval. So given the failed clinical trial this week, Gilead will not be one of those NASH companies marching towards the FDA. But who's potentially up next? Well, there are three other drug makers with NASH drugs in phase three clinical trials. One of these companies, Intercept Pharmaceuticals, is expected to announce study results later this quarter. The other two are Allergan and a French company called Genfit. So we mentioned earlier the hallmarks of NASH are this buildup of fat and also this liver scarring. But also, you know, both of you kind of acknowledge that the disease is not terribly well understood. So I'm curious, looking at these trials, how do we know whether a NASH drug is working? What defines a good drug for this disease? Yeah, right now, there are essentially two ways in which the FDA will approve a NASH drug. First, you can show that the drug is effective by reducing the amount of fibrosis or scar tissue in the liver. You know, that's the route that Gilead took but failed because improving or reducing fibrosis is hard to do, particularly in patients with more advanced stages of NASH. The second way to prove that a NASH drug is effective is by reducing or resolving the amount of fat, inflammation, and ballooning that's present in the liver. So demonstrating NASH, what they call NASH resolution, is easier, but it also makes a weaker case for reimbursement from insurers. This is really important, and we've seen this with some other drug classes that seem like they could be big and then weren't. Right now, there isn't a lot of hard scientific evidence to prove that reducing the amount of fat in the liver leads to better long-term outcomes for patients. And by outcomes, we mean a lower risk of liver failure, we mean fewer transplants. So it's possible that we see a NASH drug or two secure FDA approval next year. But if that happens, that just opens up new challenges for NASH drug developers. Right, Matt? Well, right. There's an issue here that it's possible that drugs can get approved but then not paid for. The most extreme example we've seen of this recently has been with the PCSK9 inhibitors, which are incredibly effective cholesterol-lowering drugs. They were also expensive, and insurers and pharmacy benefit managers and the employers that pay them all kind of decided that they weren't going to pay for these because if you paid for them for everybody with high cholesterol, it would be a huge market. Well, the appeal of NASH is it could be a huge market, but insurers are going to have a motivation to keep the paid-for indications for these drugs as small as possible. They want to prevent liver transplants, but they don't want this to become something that millions and millions of people get right off the bat before you prove that that prevents downstream consequences. Matt, thanks for coming on the show. Always a pleasure, guys. It has been more than three decades since the FDA approved a new type of drug for severe depression. But it looks like that's about to change. This week, a novel depression treatment made by Johnson & Johnson convinced a group of FDA advisors that it deserves to win approval. 
That puts the drug on the path to the market. And a final decision is expected early next month. What is particularly interesting about the J&J drug is that it's related to ketamine, and that's an anesthetic sometimes abused at higher doses. More than a decade of research has linked ketamine to depression relief, and there's a nationwide industry based on giving off-label infusions of the drug to patients in need. That means the potential approval of J&J's treatment, which is a nasal spray called esketamine, has wide-ranging implications for patients, science, and business. Stats Megan Thielking has been following this story for months and tuned in to that meeting of FDA advisors. She joins us now. Megan, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. So, Megan, let's start with the news. Now, we know that the FDA advisors voted in favor of J&J's drug, but what was the discussion like and what did they see as the benefits and risks? So the discussion was overall pretty positive. For the most part, the panelists were convinced that there was good evidence that esketamine can provide relief, at least to some patients who have treatment-resistant depression. Uh, There was actually a really big emphasis during the meeting on the patient perspective. They heard from people who have treatment-resistant depression, who talked about just how dire the need is for new treatments, and especially ones that act very quickly like esketamine can. There was uh, some conversation about the potential for abuse, given, like you said, that ketamine can be used recreationally. And there were a couple other risks that got talked about, like blood pressure problems and dissociation. But for the most part, the panel seemed comfortable with the strategy to address those risks. They're going to deliver it in a single-use nasal spray in a doctor's office, and they're going to have patients stick around for at least an hour and a half to make sure they're okay. As we mentioned, using ketamine to treat severe depression is is not really a new idea. Megan, you've written at length about the many clinics around the country that are making money right now selling infusions of ketamine to patients in need. Can you tell us about that industry and and how it came to be? Yeah, so like you said, there's research going back a long time showing that ketamine also might be able to treat depression. So people started using it off-label as a treatment for depression. And these ketamine clinics started popping up to provide ketamine to people That's through an IV infusion and not a nasal spray like what Johnson & Johnson is doing. Uh, But those clinics have spread really rapidly. There's a whole bunch of them across the whole country. And a lot of patients say they've been helped by ketamine that they've received at those clinics, patients who haven't had anything else work for their depression. But on the flip side, there's been a lot of concern that those providers aren't necessarily screening patients properly or sticking to the evidence on how to use ketamine for depression. It was actually interesting during the panel that ketamine clinics were brought up and they were talked about as sort of anecdotal evidence of safety because lots of people have been getting these ketamine infusions over the last few years and there haven't been widespread health problems that we've heard about. So let's assume esketamine does in fact win approval next month and ends up getting covered by insurers. What might that mean for these ketamine clinics? It's a really good question, and I think it's going to be really interesting to see how that plays out. These clinics right now, they charge people out of pocket for the infusions, and they're really expensive. Hundreds of dollars in infusion, and people often get at least six, and they may end up getting them for you know, once a month for years. So that part of their business might subside if people start using S-ketamine that's covered by their insurance. But it might also be the case that some of these providers could use their standing and sort of their existing patient base to position themselves as the go-to place for S-ketamine as well. So, Megan, when you spoke to patients who either went to or considered these ketamine clinics, was the J&J drug on their radar screen? For some patients, it definitely was. I think the cost is just so prohibitive for some people. And it's such a point of stress, even for people who can afford it, that having something that could both ease their depression and that their insurers would actually pay for is really appealing to a lot of patients. Megan, thanks for joining us. Thank you.
By now, you've probably heard plenty about the potential of artificial intelligence in medicine. It might revolutionize things like interpreting medical data or predicting patient outcomes. But you've also probably heard plenty about how much hype there is out there about what these algorithms can actually do. But what does the evidence actually say about the matter? Joining us today to answer that question is Dr. Eric Topol. He's a cardiologist and a geneticist at the Scripps Research Institute in San Diego. Eric recently published a review article in the journal Nature Medicine, in which he sifted through tons of the research that's out there on AI in medicine. I found his conclusions to be really informative in thinking about this subject, and I think you will too. Eric, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Great to join you. So to set the table, I was struck in reading your review article about how much of this stuff involves reading images, things like medical scans and pathology slides and retinal images. It's the same sort of general concept as Facebook recognizing your face in photos posted by friends. So when we talk about AI in medicine, what kinds of applications tangibly are we talking about? Well, Rebecca, images certainly are the front line on all this. That is, as you said, whether it's radiology scans, uh, whether it's uh, pathology slides, uh, skin lesions, anything that's uh, of image is ideal because it's a a pattern that can be deep learned uh, for algorithms and at higher levels of accuracy um, than what humans can detect. A lot of that work, of course, has been prospective in large data sets, and there's a limited amount that has been shown prospectively. But I think the the first wave of AI impact is clearly going to be in this image world. There are many other areas that, that are going to be addressed, uh, which we'll get into, but um, that is ripe for deep learning. And what is extraordinary, uh, I think it's been proven now that there's things that machines can be trained to see that humans can't. And I think the best example of that of all is the fact that if you give retinal experts images of the retina and ask them to, to determine whether it's a male or female, the chance of being correct is 50-50, but the algorithms are 97% accurate, and no one knows why. So that kind of tells a story of where this could go in the years ahead. So as we mentioned earlier, you did the work of digging through the research that's out there to see what you could find in the way of gold standard evidence on AI prediction in medicine. Tell us what you found, Eric, and what you didn't find. Well, I alluded to what I, I didn't find. It was actually sobering to see so little work done prospectively and published. And we're talking about very limited number of studies that uh, fit that bill. So what I found was an abundant number of kind of promissory notes of looking retrospectively, but not in a clinical environment, but rather an in silico uh, machine environment. And we know that that's not the same as, you know, the clinical real world test. And we've already seen evidence that when you take things that have, you know, great promise and you put them in the real world, that it kind of breaks down to some extent. So I think that was the biggest concern I have. There's also the issue of, you know, even when you have a wonderfully performing algorithm, uh, and the classic metric for that is the receiver operating characteristic or area under the curve AUC, and let's say it's, you know, 0.98 or something that's spectacular, but that doesn't mean anything if it isn't having a clinical impact, if it isn't helping patients, what uh, we've called Pierce Keen and I the AI chasm. So that's another big problem right now is we've got, you know, really long on promise and short on published validated 
data. And why do you think that dearth of high quality prospective evidence is there? Like, what are the barriers to to gathering that data or why aren't people doing it? Well, there's a lot of reasons for that. One, of course, is the field is relatively new, whereas AI has, you know, uh, gotten into other sectors. Healthcare is, you know, much more recent. The second thing is that it requires labeled data sets, the larger, the better, and the a more carefully annotated the better, so that you have these ground truths, so you really do know what is the accurate read or the slide or the skin lesion. One of the problems we have in medicine in general is we don't have these great labeled data sets like we have in the tech world, and so we have to aspire to have those because it's really the inputs that are vital to making great algorithms. So, Eric, in your article, you looked across the board at the evidence basis across a ton of different areas of medicine. Are there certain disease areas that are lower-hanging fruit for AI to work and be useful? And on the flip side, are there any disease areas that aren't a good fit for the technology? You know, frankly, I couldn't find one discipline of medicine that doesn't have significant AI potential impact. You know, eye disease, to be able to diagnose, you know, retinopathy, whether it's diabetic or whether it's uh, macular degeneration for gastroenterologists to diagnose diminutive small polyps that are be missed by human eye, paramedics, palliative care specialists, nurses, it just cuts across everyone. But the problem, of course, is the potential is what cuts across. The validation still awaits us. So Eric, it seems like a through line of your work is this. There's a lot of promise here, but it's not quite ready for wide use. So do you see a future where AI is an integral part of of medical care, and how far away might that be? Well, I think we desperately need it. I think the problem we have today, Rebecca, is the terrible inefficiencies, the mistakes, inaccuracies, the waste. So I do think that this is our best shot. We should invest in the efforts because here we can improve accuracy, we can improve productivity and efficiency and workflow. So it can be a big boost to augment clinicians across the board and for patients as well. But the problem that uh, I think is troubling is that we're so early into this and the hype about it overrides you know, where the data lives right now. I do think we will get there. I do think this will take hold. It's probably our best shot in the future to revamp healthcare to make it better. But it's going to take some years before we can get that accomplished. And if you want to hear much more about Eric's research on this subject, he has a new book coming out called Deep Medicine. His subtitle, How Artificial Intelligence Can Make Healthcare Human Again. Eric's book will be out on March 12th. Eric, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. All right, everyone, let's get psyched for another lightning round. I am very psyched. So the CRISPR patent drama that perhaps you and definitely I maybe thought was behind us took an interesting turn this week. What happened? Yeah, so the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office posted documents uh, indicating that the University of California will be granted the foundational genome editing patent it has long sought. And what's interesting about that is it had seemed as though the fight between UC and the Broad Institute had been settled in favor of the Broad. But it seems like the read-through now with this latest patent issuance is that anyone who wants to do human genome editing on a commercial level might have to take out a license with 
each of the two parties. And isn't it just about time that all the parties that are fighting over these patents just settled the issue? It's kind of amusing to me that the most news, the biggest news that we've gotten in CRISPR over the past few years has been in the courtroom and not in the clinic. So Damien is our resident IPO watcher. Damien, what have you been seeing in these first weeks of 2019 on the biotech IPO front? (laughs) It's a thrilling job to be the resident IPO watcher. But uh, yeah, so the government was shut down for much of January, as people are probably well aware. And among the many results of that was that the SEC functionally didn't exist for quite a while. And that meant that companies couldn't really go public. But since the SEC has come back to life, we've seen a lot of activity from those biotech companies that had to put their plans on hold because of the shutdown. So now a handful of companies have managed to actually pull off those long-delayed IPOs. And the results in early days have been kind of middling to flat in terms of trading on the market. But considering how dark sentiment was around biotech in December leading into the shutdown, that has been perceived, I think, by most people as about as good as one could hope for. And are there any kind of big biotech IPOs you're waiting on or or watching uh, following, of course, the biggest fish of them all, Moderna? There isn't really a bellwether biotech company in the IPO pipeline right now, but the offering that I think was the most scrutinized and the most looked forward to already took place. And that was a company called Elector, um, which is taking sort of a novel approach to treating Alzheimer's disease. They managed to go public earlier this month, and they raised the amount of money that they wanted at the share price that was within the range that they desired. And while the trading in early days, as I mentioned before, has been flat to slightly negative, I think that just the fact that they succeeded along their ambitions and they exist now and they're a publicly traded company has people cautiously optimistic that 2019 will be hospitable for biotech. So we're going to introduce a new term of art to the lexicon. Rebecca, what is that? Yeah, so this is the podcast that brought you the term pipelines, referring to biotech companies' pipelines that are chock full of hype. Now we're going to tell you about another term of art. It is called biomarkup, and it was coined by several Harvard researchers who put out a really fascinating opinion piece in JAMA the other day. The term biomarkup uh, is used to refer to kind of the avalanche of probing and measuring that occurs when biomarkers are promoted and even designed for economic gain. Uh, that's the wording of one of those Harvard authors. So this being a new term that you're introducing to us, could you please use it in a sentence? All that talk I heard the other day in Silicon Valley about digital biomarkers sounds like a whole lot of biomarkup to me. That does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Hyacinth Empanado, who produced this week's episode. Matthew Orr is our senior producer. And as always, Rick Burke is our executive producer. And a reminder that we'd love to hear from you. Whether you want to tell us what you liked about this week's episode or what you didn't like, you can send an email to readoutloud at statnews.com. And importantly, it being Valentine's Day, if you're among the people who draft health policy valentines on Twitter, you can send those directly to Adam. And since health policy valentines actually make me angry because they're ridiculous and stupid, I will immediately delete them. If you like what we do more than Adam likes health policy valentines, Leave a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. See you next week without Health Policy Valentines.